Today's scripture is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 9 through 15. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Liz. Well, hi, church. Good morning. It's good to see you here. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson, and I'm so glad you're here. I've gotten to meet a couple new new people this morning, um, some who are just here from out of town, and um, yeah, just others who are, who are here for the first time, and, and it's, it's good to see you. As we get into our time together, I want to let you know a couple things. Um, first is that I have a stutter, so that'll kind of come in and out as I, as I preach, and I just always want to make sure that, that you know what that is. Uh, it is exceptionally cold in here this morning, so that might uh, enhance it, but, but it, it'll um, just be, be warned here. You never know what you're going to get here in, in Safford. I think we'd probably prefer cooler than hotter. Is that right? I'm seeing some head nods. Uh, I've heard it said it is, it is typically here either the meat locker or the heat locker. So dress appropriately, bring a scarf or whatever, I'll bring something um, to, get, to get warm if you need. So we, we have a lot to, to cover this morning again. So we're going to get into it, and will you go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 13. As you saw, we just read the end of uh, chapter 12, and so we're going to dip back into that in a bit. But we'll be in chapters 13 through 18 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please turn there with me. And if you don't and would like one, which I would encourage, um, uh, hold your hand up high, please, and keep it up, and somebody will get you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own one, uh, this is our gift to you. Y en español, si quiere la Biblia y no tiene, por favor, levante su mano y diga español. Y si no tiene una Biblia, uh, eso es un regalo a usted. And uh, again, this is our gift to you if you don't own a copy of God's Word. And, and before I pray for us this morning, which we, as always, and yet once again, really clearly need uh, God's help, God's oversight together, um, I just want to again share, this is a, another heavy section. It, actually, the, the coming weeks have just a lot of heaviness to them. And in fact, some of the things we're going to look at 
kind of out of the gates again this morning could be or are heavy and could be uh, potentially triggering or, or hard to hear. And so I just want to let you know, even as we get into it and as we pray together to, to, to ask God to, to shepherd us, to care for us as we, as we get into our time together. So let's, let's go ahead and, and pray and, and, we'll, um, and we'll keep it up. Lord, we, we do come before you this morning uh, from all different places. Uh, some were at the U of A f- football game last night and are probably excited about that and maybe lo- lost their vo- vo- voice and um, are just kind of stumbling in here this morning. Some, uh, Lord, had different things going on this morning. Some might have just gotten off of work after working all night. Uh, I don't know. We, we all are coming from different places and we all approach your word, your unchanging word, we all come from different places and in different seasons. And so we ask and trust that somehow you speak perfectly through your word to us in different places we're at. You want to meet us and care for us. Lord, encourage us. For those who need to be convicted, you will convict us. And somehow also, while you're doing an individual work, you're also forming us corporately, collectively in this room. So as Pastor Keith prayed earlier, we invite and ask for your Holy Spirit to uh, overwhelm and, and to, to, to oversee our time together. Lord, will you speak through me? Will my words be your words? And Lord, will you open all of our eyes and ears to hear and respond to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So about seven years ago, I, I opened the door to our backyard a little bit lightheaded and pretty disoriented, a little bit confused, and asked my wife to come in and, and, and help, help lead through a conversation that we needed to have as a family. And I was, as I said, a little bit lightheaded, a little bit disoriented, partly because my hand was throbbing. And uh, I, I had, didn't know it at the time, but I had broken my hand. And I also was a little disoriented and confused because I was wondering what just happened. Why did I just punch a wall? that I, uh, I, I, I hadn't done kind of an outburst of anger like that in a long time. I'd, in fact, worked pretty hard not to act like that. I, I'd have anger and frustration in my own heart uh, often. Sometimes if I was alone in the car, it would come out of my mouth, but, but usually didn't, didn't result in something like that. And, and I was embarrassed, confused, again, hurt somewhat in physically, but mostly confused by why I just did that. And, 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 and looking back now, again, about seven or so years after the, after the fact, um, I, I, I can connect some, some dots that at the time I didn't. But nonetheless, I was, as I said, embarrassed, confused, sad, a little bit scared, and um, it, it was, uh, it was, it actually happened on a Friday. And so if some of you m- might've been here, I, I preached on Sunday and I right there in that moment had a, had a choice to make. I can either kind of pretend for the next year or so that I'm shaking my people's hands with my left hand 
just because it's a new thing I'm trying out or whatever. I'm doing fist bumps. But uh, I just, you know, in that moment, it, it worked out to, to share and to kind of talk as a church and a congregation about, about God's grace, his undeserved favor. But it also opened uh, a journey for me and, and in some ways kind of by default for many of us within our, our, our church of, of, of asking this question of where, where do these kinds of things come from. I'm a follower of Jesus. I put my faith in him. I was, I was baptized. And, and as we say here and, and, and said, even as I heard, you know, now that you put your faith in Jesus, the old is, is, is gone. The new has come. As when someone is baptized, they hear the words, you are through faith in Jesus, you are now dead to sin and alive again to new life through faith or a transfer of trust in him. So how could something old come out uh, in a new way, in a new season, many, many years after following Jesus, in many ways uh, preaching the good news of Jesus. So I'll pick back up with that in a bit, but I want to ask you a question that, that I asked then, and, and I think this text we're in this morning leads us to, do you ever find yourself wondering um, why things you've done or things that have been done to you just seem to not go away, just seem to be, be, be grounded or entrenched a little bit in some deep places in our hearts, even in our actions, that though no matter how much we might want, it seems to continually come back. Well, what, what we'll see, I think, through this kind of journey through five chapters together this morning is that leadership, whether good or bad, has massive power to bring about good things or evil things. So when I talk about ling, ling, leadership, which I won't say that, I'll find a different word because L's are hard for me. <laughs> I'm thinking about parenting, older siblings, maybe um, any of us, right? pastors, educators, coaches, we're in different roles where we influence others and, 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 and sometimes choices, even as we'll see here, that, 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 that one sinful, selfish choice can have terrible consequences for lifetimes, even generations that are far-reaching. So how we're going to go about our time together in these five chapters, this morning is we're going to kind of fly by because I think there are lots of sub stories within, but there's, there's an overarching idea. And so what I'm going to do, especially since we camped out and spent a lot of time last week and in five verses this week, we're going to do more of a kind of fly over, kind of stop in and, 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 and then, but continue to go. And again, the big idea that I want us to just sit with is the reality in some ways, the injustice that someone's selfish, evil choices can impact many, many others, again, for lifetimes or even generations. So with that, pick up with me. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13, and a little bit of backstory here is, uh, if you weren't here last week, David King... David called a man after God's own heart, selfishly, tragically abused his power 
and took uh, 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 someone's wife who is not his own, and I, we talked about it last week, seemingly, I think, against her will, and, and, and he, he had sex with her, and then when he tried to cover it up, it ultimately led to him having her husband killed. And so that's the context of the scripture that we heard earlier that we read. And that, that decision just has massive ramifications. So now we start out in chapter 13, and it starts out in the scene with David's oldest son, Amnon. He has many children, and his oldest son, Amnon, would be the heir to the throne, and so that's where we pick up. Amnon is sick. He's feeling sick because he's, again, I mentioned this could be really uncomfortable. He's, he's, he's infatuated with his half-sister. Okay, they share a dad, David, and he's infatuated with her. He's longing for her sexually. And he's laying in bed and he asks and, and, he, and he actually lets this be known. And his servant, who's kind of a friend, a, a counselor could have, again, we talked about last week a little bit, the importance of people in our lives who speak hard truth and who say this needs to change. Well, he lets it be known. And this is not a good friend. This is someone who, who actually advises him to act on his lusts, to act on his compulsions. And so he comes up with this scheme and his own dad, David, in some ways, maybe unknowingly, certainly, because hear me, this will be a theme passively is actually complicit in this terrible scene that we're about to see together. So picking up in chapter 13 in verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, that's his sister, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber, chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. But he would not listen to her and be being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. She tried to stop him. She, she, she cried out, this is evil. She specifically said, these things are not done in Israel. When we zoom out and look at the greater story of scripture, God honed in, he focused in on one group of people who would be a set apart people a light to the nations, that through this group of people, what it really looks like to flourish as humans, as image bearers of God, what life is meant to look like would be on display through these people. And she's saying here so wisely and so faithfully, no, we're, we're called to be set apart from these other nations. Don't do this horrible, evil thing. And he didn't listen. He violated her. That Word violated is exactly what it's 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 complete it's complete assault. It's 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 utter evil. And he did this thing, and after it it continues on, and, and the the these decisions, these ramifications are in some part directly connected to what we just looked at last week of what his own father David had done. And now we see that decision continued and per, per, 
perpetuated in Amnon. And in, 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 in verse 20, the word is used there that Tamar lives a desolate life for the rest of her days. And then David, King David, is angry. He's livid, but he's passive. His response, and we'll see that theme again, his response to his own sin and his contrition, right? He confessed last week, but the theme that continues on for David now is like he's not restored. He, he doesn't live in a restored kind of way. He's, he's convicted and beat down by his sin, but he's kind of resigned passively to like, well, what can I do about it? Like, who, who am I? And again, that theme will continue. So he's angry, but he doesn't do anything. He certainly doesn't do anything like righteously. His anger is not righteous because he doesn't act on it. And then Absalom, David's other son, Absalom, Tamar's brother, and we learn they're both beautiful. Absalom is beautiful. Tamar is beautiful. They're, they're, they're known for their looks and for their beauty. Well, Absalom is incredibly angry. And at first, when you look at this, it's like, yes, it's right. It's righteous. But if you continue on there, he actually doesn't comfort his sister. He does open his home and she comes and lives in his home. It's hard to know as you press in where Absalom's anger is coming from. It could be, and we'll see there later, he could be angry because he thinks this is a power move, his brother asserting himself over the throne. So Absalom could feel threatened because he wants to be king. So there's, there's this, this sexual lust and this lust for power that are constantly at play here now in the house of David, in the kingdom of Israel. Supposed to be God's set-apart people. Well, continue on. As I said, we kind of have to go at a, at, a, at a quick pace here flying through this. And I, I want to again acknowledge this last week. I, I don't think as you press in here, as you look at the Hebrew language, as you read there, it, this is utterly despicable to God. This is not like, well, these kinds of sin and the consequences of sin are evil. God doesn't condone them. God doesn't smile upon them and he doesn't brush past them. So with that, as we again look at the broader story here and the narrative of David and the result and consequences of his selfishness, his self-focus. In chapter 13, picks up and we see that, that, that David's son Absalom is angry, right? He's, he's so mad, but he lets it stew for like two years. He again, he doesn't act on it. He's kind of scheming and planning the whole time. He's being He's being patient and David remains passive and withdrawn. And actually we see that because there's an opportunity here. This isn't the main point, but I think it's a point for us. And right now in these next couple of moments, we'll see specifically fathers, parents. We see a really broken example here of, of, of passively standing back, aloof. David senses that something's not right. Absalom is going to hold a, a sheep shearing fe festival. It's like a party to come and, you know, shave all the sheep and laugh at how they look, right? With that. No, I don't know the whole, it's to, you know, that's obviously important. They're going to make 
close and it's this whole thing. You're, you're, you're celebrating, you're remembering that God provides every festival in the Old Testament is purposeful. It's meant for worship and for fellowship, to bring people together. This is God's design and God, God calls his people to live and to function in such a way like this. And so Absalom is going to hold the sheep shearing festival and he invites his dad. And again, aloof, passive, distant. David's like, I don't know. I'm not going to go. Sorry, son. I'm too busy. Maybe David is suspicious. And we actually learn that he is. He's wondering because Absalom says, oh, and make sure you bring Amnon, your son, along. David's like, huh, why do you, wanna, why do you want Amnon to come? And well, he sends him anyway. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't act on. He doesn't move toward his son. He doesn't ask questions. He's distant. So he sends his son Amnon anyway. And look here in uh, chapter 13, verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Again, they all fled because they're, they're thinking, wow, Am- Absalom is making his move right now for the throne. He's going to kill all of our dad's heirs, all of his siblings, so he's the only one left. And in that moment, he's, that's seemingly not his, his point, not his mo- motive. But notice a couple of just similarities here. David commanded other people to kill on his behalf. David said, oh, uh, Joab, go make sure Uriah the Hittite is killed. And when, when you're going to be discouraged because like many other soldiers die in the process, oh, don't, don't worry, right? People live and die right here. He's like, hey, don't worry, be courageous. Like his son Absalom is continuing in this, in this theme of abuse of power and trying to kind of manipulate words. Oh, it's, you know, this is what happens, justifying sin. I heard someone say last week as I was talking and kind of preparing for the sermon last week that um, be careful when God blesses you. Okay, I think another way to think of that is when you have power, be on guard. We talked about power's not bad. We see it in Jesus, the one who has the very most power. He doesn't apologize for his power, but he uses it for good. An old mentor of mine said to me as our church, as we were planting our church, he said, he said don't forget how easily re- replaceable you are. And then he said, and, and a way to do that is fight for obscurity. You know, if a toilet's clogged, you're not above that. Right? If, there's, if there's a way to, to constantly fight for, for, for hum, hum, humility, that's where Jesus is. If you want to be close to Jesus, use your power for good. Get low. Fight to be low. We see it abused here in, in these terrible ways. And just as we continue on there in, 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 in the whole rest of chapter 13, David is angry and he mourns, but he doesn't do anything about it. And because of his passivity, Absalom flees, right? It's, it's stuff that remains in the shadows 
just leaves everyone to make up their mind of what they should do. And because David doesn't address this, he doesn't talk about it, he doesn't enter in, he doesn't move toward Absalom, he doesn't call him to account, he seemingly here never prays, never asks God for wisdom. He kind of just remains aloof in the shadows and Absalom puts two and two together and is like, I better hightail it out of here. And so he's gone. We learn for three years And David, it says, mourned, but again, he didn't act on it. He has all the power. We saw last week, he has so much power, the power for life and for death, the power to give, the power to take away, and yet he passively sits back, again, paralyzed by fear. And then in chapter 14, Absalom returns. So he's gone for three years. Now Absalom returns, and it's made known to David. But look in verse 24 of chapter 14, how David responds. The king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of the king, his own dad. Five years has gone by. This unreconciled conflict. Yes, murder. This family brokenness is remaining in the shadows just lurking there for, for, for gossip, for everyone to come to their own conclusions, for these narratives to just continue in everyone's mind. And Absalom has his own narrative that's going, and David never enters into it. David never leads through it. And then finally, Absalom says that he can't, he can't handle it anymore. It's like, listen, if I'm going to die or live, I want to at least know. I want to go see my dad. So he's, he, he, he returns, and, and it's seemingly never fully reconciled, but now all of a sudden Abs- Absalom's back, and likely the narrative that he's been coming up with is continuing, and so we see that Absalom rises in power. And it's actually in this section here that we learn that Absalom is, again, very handsome. Uh, it's specifically, the narrator specifically puts that in there. Absalom's handsome, and it goes a step further, not just that he's handsome, but he has great hair, right? Unlike some of us, right? I got to admit, I had a little bit of insecurity as I, as I read about Absalom and his hair. It'll come up, it'll come into play in a moment, but, but Absalom's nice, fancy hair is, is noted by others. His good looks is noted by others. And it's not that like if you're exceptionally attractive and you know it, um, it's, you shouldn't feel bad about it, but, but, but there's this, the, the narrator makes a point though, to say that, 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 um, that, that people see through their own lenses. And one of those lenses, I think like in our day is beauty, physical prowess. Uh, Keith preached about this a number of weeks ago, height, right? Good thing I wasn't preaching that one. I would have really laid into that. No, height and what, 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 what people think is, is going to communicate power and authority and influence and, and, you know, strength. And that's what the people note here. They noted it with Saul. Eventually, they noted it with David. They note it with Absalom, and so Absalom gains power. He starts to, to, to gain notoriety and he starts to build a following. 
And then this whole chaotic series of events happens in chapter 15 where David catches wind of it and he flees. He leaves with thousands of his own followers. And this is the first picture of God's kingdom, his people of Israel being divided. Though they'll come back together, this is a foreshadowing of what's to come, what will ultimately be the case until Jesus returns. God's people, Israel, this family, this huge family, is now divided. And David flees. In, in chapter 16, it's incredibly tragic. It actually comes to a head where, if you recall what we read, what Liz read earlier from chapter 12, we've seen coming to fruition. Actually, Absalom, uh, David left 10 of his concubines back behind. And Absalom builds a tent on the roof of the house. We talked about the roof is a place where people lived. Well, the king's house, the palace, it's the highest of all. So in this very public top place, he actually sleeps with his dad's concubines. There's brokenness, there's evil, there's injustice all over the place here. Right? They, these, these 10 women are, are assaulted in, in really in a really public way as a power move for Absalom to assert his dominance over his dad. And then in chapter 18, Absalom is killed. It's, again, a very bizarre series of events kind of unfolds. And in this case, Absalom's on his mule. It, like over 20,000 other people die in this war. It goes from the open into the woods, into the trees. And I'm not a military expert and certainly not from back then, but I don't think that's, that's there's again this picture of chaos, right? They're in the oak trees and all these people go in there and they're getting devoured. It says actually more people died from the forest than by the sword, and Absalom is, it's that thick and he's on his mule and he's riding through. And again, maybe perhaps in a little bit of like narrative humor, Absalom's awesome hair gets caught in the oak trees and he's dangling there. The mule continues on and he's now hung up there. And this really sad picture takes place here where there's actually a debate over Absalom's life. Can just, let's bring it back to earth. Like this is, this is human beings. Like, be in the moment there. King David says, make sure my son is not harmed. Make sure Absalom doesn't die. And some of the servants overhear that. And so Joab, again, the military commander, he would be like the muscle. As we, as we read through this, he would be like kind of like the mafia muscle, the hitman, is kind of the picture we get here of Joab. And we'll see this kind of even continue more next week. But Joab says, hey, you know, kill him, take him out. And then the servants are like, no, didn't you hear David said, make sure my son doesn't get harmed. So Absalom's like, oh, you know, wuss, kind of dismisses him and then has three spears thrown into Absalom. And then he doesn't die from that, so he actually calls kind of a massive group of people to surround him and, and kill him. It's ugly, it's brutal. And David mourns. Let's just kind of close out this, this chaotic five chapters with this. 
In chapter 18, verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Even in his mourning, his grieving is neurotic and chaotic. It's actually hurtful toward others. His other children there, the same thing happened likely earlier when he's mourning Amnon's death, not comforting his daughter Tamar, not looking out for her, not thinking about Absalom who needs to be held accountable for this murder he just uh, counted and also needs to be fathered. But he's just so in the moment, he's so reactive, he's, he's just mourning and, and it's, it's chaotic and it's broken. What happened? If, if you can throw 2 Samuel chapter 12 up there, sorry I didn't give you a, a heads up on that. But just what we saw, right, the consequences of David's selfish, individualistic sin. Sin is, I'll take it from here, God. I want to do what seems right to me. I'm not going to take my cues from you. I'm not going to have my identity, my purpose, my joy found in you. I'll do it on my own. And he says, you chose to do what is evil in God's sight. You have struck down your eye of the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, just like Absalom did. You can go to the next one there. All right, he says, the sword will never depart from your house because you've despised me. And then the next, right, we see that, again, this came true. It just looks like words on a page. Ten human beings, image bearers of God, were violently And then can you go to the next there? He said, you did it secretly. It's going to be before everyone. And then then go on to, I think it's verse 15. Or no, I'm sorry. Yeah, right there. Even the child, this innocent child that David conceived with Bathsheba ultimately dies. David's sinful choice had massive ramifications. I know even in our redemption communities, there have been some significant conversations and things, and I think that's good. That needs to continue. I think right now what I want to do is zoom out. Right? We, just, we, 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 we look at these things in isolation, maybe even in our world around us. We look at injustice, and we usually go right to, God, how could you? We, 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 we blame him. We, we see in specific instances, specific moments, this evil, this, this brokenness, this, this injustice, and, 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 and we often are so close to it, even in our own hearts, that we fail to see the big, the big picture. I think as we zoom out, we look at the, the big picture, we see the reality of where we find ourselves. This Bible, and we seek to walk through it week by week and how we go through our service, right? We sung at the beginning, this is my father's world. This is our father's world. We begin with creation. If we don't understand God's good, beautiful plan, what he intended 
us to be like, what he intended our relationships to be like, the way he intended our relationships with ourselves to look, with the world around us to look, if we don't have a picture in mind of the way things ought to be, then we just find ourselves again kind of reacting moment by moment and we, we don't see that actually sin is some of you who are in surge, this kind of leadership development that, that we do. It's a nine-month curriculum. We've just heard this language, right? It's not the way it's supposed to be, that sin is a parasite. Sin attaches itself onto something else, that what God created to be good, right, true, and beautiful, we have distorted and manipulated It's not the way it's supposed to be. And then we see that all throughout the whole Old Testament, we see that God remains faithful even to incredibly unfaithful people. Like David called a man after, he is so unfaithful. The people, like thousands and thousands of innocent people have died because of his terrible decisions. And then Jesus enters into the picture. God, the author of the whole story and the hero of the story, steps into these terrible, broken family cycles of destructive sin that we just got a snapshot at through five chapters that probably many of us know all too well through our own family circumstances. Look in... Ephesians chapter 2, or just look up here at the good news. The reality is we were, by nature, children of wrath. By nature and by choice, we are all sinners. Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. Pastor Luke a couple weeks ago said, I love it, like, right, the God's big butts, right? This is one of the most important, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right In David and his children, we see David's sin of violence perpetuated in Absalom. We see David's sexual sin perpetuated in Amnon. It's not new in this moment, right? If we're uncomfortable with this, we can zoom out and even see throughout the whole story of Scripture, right? Adam, right? His his children, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. And then you see Noah and his he's a terrible guy. He's despicable and his kids are a mess and God has to separate them from each other. And it's, it's, it's ugly and broken. And then Abraham, right? Father Abraham. And we like to kind of make these people up. Well, Abraham is unfaithful as well. And his children, Ishmael and Isaac are at war with each other. And many believe that even leads to what is now the Muslim and Jewish conflict that we continue to see in our day today. This, this, his house was in disarray. And then you fast forward and you see that Isaac's own children, Jacob and Esau, he plays favorites and it's broken and a whole group of people become annihilated. The Edomites, the children of Esau. And then Jacob's children try to kill one of their brothers, Joseph. And that leads to, again, ultimately them going to Egypt and then slavery in Egypt. And we just saw David's household. 
But thankfully, Jesus steps in. He's called a son of David. Our our tendency is to either want to distance ourselves completely from the sins of our families of origin or to just accept it and be like, well, what can I, I can't help it. I'm from a family of alcoholics. I, I had an angry dad. I, he had an angry dad. My mom had an angry dad. Like just anger is a part of our, our fa- family. Churches, I kind of ro- ro- wrap it up a bit. Um, I have thought about where to leave us. And I'm going to end in a moment with some really practical stuff. But first, I just want to kind of share my own story. I can't give you what, what, what I don't have. And, and I don't want this to just be theological. Oh, what do we do with David? Oh, it's so unjust. This sin happened to this person. And what do we do with this and with that? Because Jesus chose to take on a really broken family name and enter into it, not keep himself distant from it and not just accept it, but change it, redeem it, make it new, right? What we just read in Ephesians chapter two, because of that and only because of that, there can be hope, there can be change. When I sat there confused, why did I just punch a wall? That day, I got power of attorney for my mom who raised me, single mom of four boys. My older brother came out, and there's brokenness there in our, in our family. And I, I, Because the gospel, in many ways through my wife, leading us in a time of prayer, of singing, for me, conf- confessing, trying, that led to texting some of you in this room and calling a bunch of other pastors within Redemption that led to someone who knew someone else who bankrolled me going to this really expensive, like week-long thing that I would have never been able to pay for myself to go and do some deep work to apply the gospel to really deep, broken places in my own heart. Though I knew it intellectually, it, it hadn't transformed every aspect of my heart. And that informed, like two years ago, some of you know my dad took his own life. And I, and I stood on the front porch of his trailer right where he breathed his last. And, and then like six or seven months after that, I stood in the apartment where my older brother and my sister-in-law died tragically from drug overdose. The gospel's real. The, the only hope, the only understanding in those moments is not this, 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 this kind of intellectualization of the faith. But as Jesus, if you don't step in and change things, it's hopeless. Jesus, if you don't step into my own heart, these sins of my father are gonna continue to perpetuate. I need you. You've, you've taken my place and you've given me new life. Church, that's true for every one of us. It's not simplistic. It's not a quick fix. Sexual sin, anger, perhaps mental health, sins of gluttony, of consumerism, things that were like, why won't this go away? I think a really simplistic, palatable gospel 
that word means good news, is no gospel at all. But Jesus, who entered into every aspect of broken human life and then dealt with it and then declared there's a new way to live, that is our hope. So again, as we close, something I almost never do, I want to give us some really practical application, <laughs> right? Normally I'd be like, all right, let's pray, amen. I don't Like, there it is, Holy Spirit, do with us what you will. <laughs> That's still the case, okay? We need the Spirit to lead us. But let me walk through a couple quick applications together. First, grace. Live by grace. Acknowledge, have it flow off our tongues. Whether you, you lean left or right politically, there's such a tendency to say, they, 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 I don't do that. Instead, what would it look like for it to roll off our tongues? If not for the grace of God, that would be me. If not for the grace of God born into a different family, I might be in really arrogant, wealthy, whatever we want to kind of categorize our version of the right. Or if not for the grace of God, I might be a, you know, because this is my family, I don't know, sorry, white trash, you know, freeloading, whatever, like we kind of want to other or characterize or uh, what, what would it look like for just grace to flow off our tongues, for us to view other people through the lens of God's grace? And hear me, for us to view ourselves, parents, for us to parent in such a way that says, I'm not perfect. It says, I'm so sorry, son or daughter. I, I've led you in really broken ways. I need God's help. Live by grace. Um, let me read this really quickly. Grace means we are not held to our worst moment or cursed by our worst decision. Grace means out of the ashes of sin, leaders, again, parents, spouses, but bosses, people in general, we're all, we all lead something or someone. Because of grace, we can rise because the Savior has resurrection power. Sin and brokenness and cycles of brokenness don't get the last word. And then next, number two, dig into your story. Just be curious, be kind to yourself, again, if you struggle with that, circle back up to number one. Live by grace. But be curious. Where does this come from? Where does this anger come from? Where does this sin come from? Where does this propensity come from? There's another quote. I, I, we didn't have room for me to fit it up there. Let me read this to us that I heard. The work we do and the work we don't do regarding our stories to help us find health is not only about us but it impacts our kids and those we care for for generations. Uh, Pastor Seth Trout at Redemption Gateway. And that's actually the, the third action point is listen to this podcast. It's a King and Culture podcast. And specifically, this one is called Breaking Generational Patterns. And he talks about that. Did you hear that? The work we do and the work we don't do isn't just about us. It informs our parenting informs how we influence and lead others. Number four, we need to break down the stigma of getting help, therapy, counseling. We have a whole list of counselors here in town that we're happy to send you. We have a couple people in our own church, um, Kim Arnold, uh, Gary and Denise Mebaker, different levels of counseling, coaching, soul care. Don't go at it alone. It, God has used it to transform my life. 
mass and is continuing to use it to transform my life. Second to last, number five, community. Again, we have men's events, women's events, a women's conference, a women's retreat, not conference. That sounds boring. A women's <laughs> retreat, a women's retreat. Go, don't go at it alone. For me, retreats set the stage for asking for help. Just very subtly, I was one of those. It was like, I got this, you know, grin and bear it. I'm going to distance myself from my family. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I, I'm not like my family. I, don't, I just say no to drugs. I don't do this. I don't, I'm not like them. I'm so different. And then I just have anger boiling within me. But just experiencing community has helped to get help. And then uh, lastly, again, cling to the gospel. The bad news, the reality is one selfish decision can have terrible, lifelong, generational impact. But, but, one selfless act of Jesus entering in, taking on our broken family name, establishing a new family, inviting us into that family, saying, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, saying, come to me, take on my burdens. They're, they're gentle. They're easy. Walk with me and I will give you new life. I will give you a new home. I will give you a new heart. I will give you hope and a promise that one day all things will be made new. Let's pray and respond together. Lord, again, we need you. We need your help. Um, Lord, we've covered so much, and I don't know what is maybe a hamster wheel in everyone's hearts or minds here right now this morning. It, it could be an off comment. It could be one verse or passage that stuck out that maybe is really painful, that maybe sounds too easy or that maybe sounds overwhelming. Lord, I don't know. I, I want to right now on all of our behalf, Lord, we say, help us. Lord, lead us by your Holy Spirit now to respond individually and corporately to our only hope, the good news of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.